You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. If this is your first time with us in 2024, I want to say welcome. Happy New Year. We're glad that you are joining us for worship. My name is Clint. I'm one of the guys on staff. And again, we're grateful that you are with us. As you're turning to Colossians 3, let me just let you know one thing about our church that we are very much committed to is to preaching through books of the Bible. We believe that this book is unlike any other because we believe uh, what 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 is true. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God. The ESV translate that, that word breathed out. It's one word in the original language other translations would say inspired, that all, scriptures, all the scriptures are inspired by God. But that is not the best translation because it's not what we mean when we typically say the word inspired. So if you think of an artist or you think of a musician or something and they were to see a sunset or see something and then be inspired, they would still then be the author of whatever they created. Um, this word breathed out um, is two words in the original language uh, that are pushed together to make one. Um, this is the only time it shows up in the scriptures. One, the first part of that word is God. The other part is the word for wind or breath. And the idea is that the, every word in this book is the very breath of God. Not just that he inspired some uh, human authors to write it, but these are God's words from him to us. And the Bible isn't just a manual for how to live your life. It's the primary way that the God of the universe reveals to us his character and his nature, what he's doing in the world. And again, 2 Timothy 3 says that every word in this book is breathed out by God. And that is why we, as a church, are committed to preaching through books of the Bible. So if you're a guest with us, as you come into this room, regardless of what Sunday it is, almost always we will be either beginning, in the middle, or ending a sermon series through one of these 66 books that reveal to us who God is and what he's done. Last year, we finished a 16-month series through the Gospel of Matthew, and all God's people said amen. Uh, that came out weird, amen. <laughs> and we also preached through the book of Hebrews, because we're committed that, that every word here is profitable for us, for correction and reproof and rebuke. Um, uh, and, and the reason why I mention that is because last week, we mentioned that we are spending the first three weeks of this year um, drilling in, not on a book of the Bible, but an idea that we see in the scriptures. Really, it's this one word that is one of the most foundational words or ideas around Christianity. And I just wanted to offer that to you by saying, in two weeks, we're gonna start a, a sermon series through a book of the Bible, because that's what we do. Um, we just made this decision to spend the first three weeks of the year this way, not because we couldn't decide what to preach, but because we feel compelled by the Spirit of God that this is what we need as a church, to spend a few weeks talking about this idea of discipleship. If you were here with us last week, we started out uh, in this thing, but our hope in this series is that we would be able to offer some common language for us so that we know what we mean. When you hear the word discipleship from a sermon or in a conversation, uh, that you would know what it means. And the way we're defining it is this. Discipleship is the lifelong pursuit of following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and living on mission with Jesus. Those three parts of that definition are serving as our outline for this series. Following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and living on mission 
with Jesus. Last Sunday, we talked about what it means to follow Jesus. And so we won't spend a ton of time on this, but I think it's important that we're on the same page in this conversation. Matthew 4, verse 18, it'll be on the screen. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. One of the first things that Jesus does as he begins his ministry is that he calls people to follow him, right? To become his disciples. And this word disciple, it's not a description of a Christian who is really serious about their faith. It's not a subset of Christian, of people who are, are all about Jesus. This is what Christians were called before they were called Christians. They were called disciples. And the point we made last Sunday from this passage that we just read in Matthew 4 is that discipleship starts with an invitation from Jesus and it starts with a promise of a new identity. It's important that we see that these men that were called to follow Jesus, they weren't um, looking for him. They were just going about their business, but what they didn't know was that Jesus had come looking for them, that the all-powerful, all-knowing second person, uh, second person of the triune God of the universe who has always been and will always be, he saw them and he moved toward them and he invited them to follow him, which is an invitation not to just live your life differently. The invitation from Jesus to follow him is not an invitation to follow a list of rules, uh, do's and don'ts, right? He, the invitation is to spend your life in an actual relationship with the God of the universe. The way we said this last week, and I'm gonna say it a million times today and next week that you'll be sick of hearing it, is that the, the invitation to, of discipleship is a life not just living for God, but living with God. Not just for God, but with God. Discipleship starts with an invitation. It starts with the promise of a new identity. In Matthew 4, verse 19, Jesus says, you follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is identity language. Jesus invited these disciples into a, a relationship with them and he offers to make them into something completely new, something quite frankly that they and we have no shot of becoming on our own apart from the help of Jesus. Because church, this is not just about fishing. This is about how empty it is for us to pursue a life of value and meaning and, and identity in this world apart from Christ. That's what this invitation is about, that Jesus meets us where we are to make us into who God wants us to be. Discipleship starts with this invitation and this promise of a new identity. And the invitation to follow Jesus is not a one and done thing. It's not, hey, I'm a Christian because I made a decision when I was 12. It's not, I'm a Christian because of that thing that happened at summer camp. I mentioned earlier in that prayer, we have almost 60 high school students, over a dozen staff and volunteers uh, in LJ, Georgia at winter retreat. And last week we put some cards up here. Hopefully you grabbed those and you've been praying for them. I've been praying for God to move and work on winter retreat. You know what I haven't been praying? I haven't been praying, God, open their eyes that they might see you and make a decision for you and then ignore you Monday to Saturday for the rest of their lives. I've been praying and asking God to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, remove the veil that they might see that Jesus is better and then spend the rest of their lives not just trying to follow a list of rules, but to live their life with him because they've been reconciled by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is what discipleship is. The offer of Christianity and the good news of the gospel isn't a get out of hell free card, it's an invitation to live our lives with God a lifelong pursuit of following Jesus and being changed by Jesus and living on mission with him. And church, any desire for Christianity 
that wants the benefits of salvation without the cost of discipleship isn't Christianity. It's an invitation to live not just for him, but with him. If you were here last week, this will make sense. The, the life that wants God to save them, but not wants to follow him, it's the branch that disconnected from the vine. And it's propped up by its personal accomplishments and by the approval of others. And we think we're okay to be disconnected from the tree just because we know the tree exists. I know Jesus exists and he's there for me if I need him and we live our life disconnected, but that doesn't make us any less dead. The invitation from Jesus is to live and the way we do that is trying not to just live for him, but to live with him, to abide like Jesus says in John 15 verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the idea of the Christian life is that we stay connected to Jesus every moment of every day. Not just in the morning and then you go about your day. Not just on Sundays and you go about your week, but every moment of every day we stay connected to Jesus because apart from him, he says what? We can do nothing. Because if and when we move away from him, we sever ourselves from our source of life. So discipleship is a lifelong pursuit of following Jesus, living not just for him, but with him. It is a lifelong pursuit of being changed by Jesus. Look with me, Colossians chapter three. Colossians three verse one says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3 is a transitional passage in this letter. What I mean by that is chapter 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, are all theology and Christology. It's two chapters about who Jesus is and about what he has accomplished for us. And then chapter three is a transition point. It's the part where the Apostle Paul begins to say, since this is who Jesus is, since this is what he has accomplished for us, here's how your life should be different. Here's how you should be changed by that. And it starts with a conditional statement in verse one. You see this, if you have been raised, then seek the things that are above, right? If you have been raised, then here's what you need to do. Pay attention here to what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say, if you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then here's how your life should look different. It says, if you have been raised, if you have been raised. See, the point there is about this, is about identity. It's, it, the Bible puts us with him, with Jesus, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection, because the gospel is not about bad people being made good. The gospel is about dead people coming to life in Christ. This is the argument Paul explains in chapter two. Look over one column, chapter two, verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made what? God made what? Alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul says that through our faith, in the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead, we are brought from death to life. From spiritual death to spiritual life. And he says how in verse 14. He says because he, Jesus, canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. 
when, when Rome would crucify someone, above the cross, they would make a sign with an inscription of the crimes that they had committed and they would nail it to the cross for a couple of reasons. One, as people saw that, they would say, I don't wanna commit those crimes because that's what's gonna happen to me. Um, and the other reason would be to kind of communicate that Rome was a, a place of justice, that peace and order would rule under their, uh, their rule and reign. So Matthew in his gospel, he actually tells us what they put above Jesus when they crucified him. Matthew 27, verse 37 says, and over his head they put the charge that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The idea here is that Rome crucified Jesus for claiming to have authority that they said didn't belong to him, and yet we know who he is. And we know that he actually was, his plans was to to establish a kingdom that was far greater than Rome, but Paul picks up on this idea of this cross, this sign being nailed above the cross, and he says about you and about me, the Apostle Paul says about you and about me that every reason that you and I don't measure up and every single reason why we are disqualified from a relationship with God, he says, all the record of debt that stood against us was nailed to the cross. Here's what that means. When the betrayed, beaten, and crucified Jesus, when he pushes himself up on the nail that was driven through his feet to draw one last breath before he yields his spirit, he utters one word in the original language, three in English, what was it? It is finished. It's the Greek word tetelestai. You know what it means? It was an accounting term that was used to describe a debt, a record of debt that had been paid in full and they would stamp on it tetelestai. Jesus pushes up on the nail. The record of debt that stood against us nailed to the cross and he says, it's finished. It's been paid in full. Paul says that Christ on the cross canceled the record of debt and as a result, we are forever given this new identity as sons and daughters of God. And oftentimes we struggle with this because it doesn't feel like it's true. But what the Bible is saying is that Christian identity is received and not achieved, right? We are raised from spiritual death and our debt has been canceled, not because of how hard we try, or because of how much better we get, but only because a resurrected Jesus reaches down into our dead life and he gives us grace that we will never deserve and he meets us every moment with mercy that we would never earn. This is what verse three means when it says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Theologians call this positional righteousness meaning we are positionally in Christ. And when God the Father looks at us because of our faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, he doesn't see our sin or our guilt or our shame, he sees the perfection of Christ. We are positionally righteous. And yet what Colossians 3 is gonna talk about today is that although we are positionally righteous, we are not yet practically righteous, meaning there is a gap in every one of our lives between who we are now and who we ultimately will be. And what the Bible is gonna say is that what God is doing in us is closing the gap. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ, God is taking us from who we are now to who we ultimately will be. He's changing us. He's shaping us. He's forming us. And not just into all different things. He is changing and shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. This is why we're saying that discipleship is a lifelong pursuit of being changed by Jesus. Look back at verse three there. For you, it says, have died. 
your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I've only come across this in the last couple of years, really. I love the way the Bible, when it speaks about our future, it, speak, it speaks about it like it's the present. Because, Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the one who all things were created by and all things were created for, including time. He's outside of it. So when, when God looks at us, it speaks about our future as, it, as if it's true here and now, which means this, church, you are as secure in Christ this moment as you ever will be. Right now, you are as secure. This is what your life being hidden with Christ in God means, and he's not gonna let you go, right? Jesus holds us. Here's why that matters. It means the pursuit, your pursuit of a life of being changed by Jesus is not in order to earn God's love and approval, your pursuit of being changed by Jesus should not be an effort to say, look, improve yourself worthy to be a son or a daughter of God. Your pursuit of being changed by Jesus because you are as secure now as you ever will be in Christ comes from a place of being given that identity, not going to it. Our identity is received and not achieved. And yet, like we said last week, following Jesus is learning how to live out of that identity rather than living to earn it. And maybe you're wondering, well, how do we do that? Well, Paul answers this in Colossians chapter three. There's three things I want you to see this morning about how we are changed by Jesus. We look up, we look in, and we look around. Look at verse one with me. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, you seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, if your debt has been canceled, if you've been given this new identity, then you look up. You get your eyes off you and all the things that you need to do and you get your eyes off others and what they think about you and who you are and you, you rest in the identity that's been given to you. You get your eyes off of you and you look to Jesus and what he's done for you. And, and again, the point the Bible is making is if you've been raised with Christ, your life should look different. Because dead people don't look like people who are alive. And you have been raised from death and made alive in Christ. And the culture that we live in says that if you wanna find yourself, if you wanna figure out who you really are, then the voice that you need to listen to most is your own. And you look inside yourself and, and you, you find out who you really are and you be true to yourself. And you don't need a change and, and if the people around you don't like that about you, then the problem is not inside you, the problem is with them and so you need to go find new people who will accept you for who you are. Here's the thing, the Bible says we are made in the image of God. And so, if we don't believe that there are things about us that God wants to change, then we aren't worshiping the God of the Bible, we're worshiping a false God that's made in the image of ourselves. Church change is not something we have to do as Christians, it's something we get to do because we have been invited to actually live in a relationship with God. We've been invited to follow him and those who follow him will not stay the same. They will not stay the same. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says this, it'll be on the screen, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The Bible says we are being transformed this word in the original language is where metamorphosis. It's where we get that English word metamorphosis. It means to change. 
So, so the scriptures are saying that we, as we, with the veil lifted by the power of the Spirit, we see the beauty of Jesus, we look to him, we will be transformed, how? Into the same image. Again, not just some nebulous transformation, we're being formed into the image of Christ together as we look to Jesus, one degree of glory to the next. That's the, the, the timeline. This is why we don't like this. Right, so you can look at your life in any sort of snapshot. It doesn't look like you're growing, but you look back over 5, 10, 15, 20 years of faithfully following Jesus and you can see he's changing me. Right, and we keep our eyes up. We look to Jesus. We don't look around and compare ourselves. I've used this illustration a couple years back, but a few years ago, my son Zeke and I were in the truck. We were in the Truman. We were driving. I was doing this absolute speed limit, not a mile per hour over, I promise you. Okay, so I'm going 60 miles an hour, 55, whatever. I don't even know what it is. It's too slow. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's too slow, all right? So I'm driving on the Truman, and this car busts past me. And Zeke sees that, and he goes, Dad, we're going backwards! Because he sees this car, and we're going this way, right? And that's what happens to us when, when you're following Jesus, when you're pursuing him, when you get your eyes off of him, and you just look in, and you look at others, you feel like you're not growing at all. But you keep your eyes on him, again, faithfully, 5, 10, 15 years, following Jesus, you look back, and you go, man, look at what God has done. He's transformed me into the same image Again, we behold the glory of the Lord. We look up, we set our minds on things that are above, that is Jesus, and we change. And the way this change happens is from the inside out. Not the outside in. It's not we live this way and we prove that we're sons and daughters of God, but it's we've been given this new identity and we follow Jesus and we're transformed from the inside out. Here's an example. And if you're wondering if this next illustration is about one of my kids, it is, okay? That's all I got. Church and kids, so it's what you get. <laughs> My daughter, Josie, is three years old. She's gonna be four in a couple weeks, which is really hard to believe. And she is one of my favorite people on the planet, okay? She is wild, all right? Um, and maybe a better way to say that to hundreds of people is to say she's passionate, okay? She's a very passionate individual. Well, several times a week, she'll do something that causes my wife to look at me with, the, with a look that says, this is your daughter, okay? Um, and I love that because she is, all right? Um, one of the things I do when I'm playing with my kids, and I don't know why, specifically with her because she's so passionate, is I just yell out these random phrases. And if you were, it's silly, I'm gonna give you one in a second. It makes no sense, I don't know why I do it, I just do it. One of those phrases is, boom, baby. Like just randomly. It's like, boom, baby, if I like hit her with a snowball, you know, just whatever, I just say, boom, baby. Um, over and over and over again. Um, and so, one day this week I came home from work and my daughter is barefoot, dressed like Elsa, running around the house, repeatedly saying, boom, baby, boom, baby, boom, baby. And my wife looks at me and she goes, this is your daughter, okay? Here's the thing. I have never told Josie to say that. Never. She wasn't running around the house saying that, trying to prove to me that she was my daughter. She was running around the house saying that because she is my daughter because she has spent time with me, because she has seen me do that, right? And so now she does it in church. This is what should be true about us as well. As we follow Jesus, as we keep our eyes on him, as we spend time with him, as we live not just for him, but with him, and cultivate a relationship with him and these deep roots of abiding in this reality that the God of the universe desires us to come to him, we are transformed, right? We become more like Christ and we grow in our knowledge of who he is and what he's done and we don't live our lives trying to white knuckle our way into obedience and adhere to a list of rules. The power to change comes not from us 
but from him. But we have an active role to play. This is how we're changed. We look up and we look in. Look at verse five with me. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So Paul starts to say here, this is how our lives will look different. And if you wanna summarize this section, what he's saying is the way that your life will look different is that some things need to die. Some things need to die. He says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. The point is, Jesus is the one who does the change in us, but there's an activity involved in this. The order of verse five is kind of confusing because therefore is the fourth word. It should be the first word. Therefore, since your record of debt has been canceled, since you are reconciled to God and you are now a son and a daughter forever loved and approved of by the God of the universe, put to death the things that are earthly in you. That's what he's saying. The word earthly here is not talking about physical earth or the creation, right? It's what in other places the scripture is called worldly. He means the way the fallen world thinks about God and how they live isn't consistent with us anymore, right? In chapter one, he says, you're alienated, hostile in mind, so you did evil deeds, but you're not alienated anymore. But now, he says, in his body of flesh, he has reconciled you. You have been brought near to God. This new identity is then what leads us to live out of that, right? It's the, he calls it the old self with its practices, the things on the outside that stem and flow out of what's on the inside. He says in verse seven, you used to walk in these, but now your life is hidden with Christ in God, and so it's not gonna work anymore. There's a tension that comes with this when you think about the Christian life and the, the, the reality that there are things that we should not be doing. There's a tension that comes with this that we feel like we have to do it on our own. Look at verse 10. It says, you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It says that we are being renewed. Not we renew ourselves. We are being renewed, which means this is happening to us. And he goes on to say that we are being renewed in knowledge by the, after the image of our creator. So the point there is as we learn and grow not just in what the Bible says, but in what the Bible reveals to us about who Jesus is, that the eternal Son of God left heaven, Philippians 2 says, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, to the, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you, so that when he would push up, he would say, it is finished about you, so that you could be reconciled. As you become more and more and more convinced about the good news of the gospel actually counting, then you become compelled by that good news and that's what changes you, right? But we're not passive in this. He says we look up, but God, he calls us to look in. He says put to death what is earthly in you. The word put to death means to, to deprive something of strength, to take power from something. Paul's point is anything in your life, church, anything in your life that you are actively walking in, giving your time, energy, and effort to that makes it difficult for you to see the beauty of Jesus, says you get rid of it. And you don't just mow over it like weeds, right? You pull them up by the root, you deprive it of its strength and its power. Historically, we make one of two different errors when it comes to our sin. The first one is we don't take it very serious at all. We never look in because what's the point? We're loved by God, we're approved of by him, so why don't we just have a little bit of fun? 
Well, the Bible says if that's your mentality, then you don't understand the gospel in the first place. The second uh, error that we make is that we do take our sin serious. We look inside of our hearts, but we do it alone, and we think it's up to us to get out of this and fight our way out, and we get overwhelmed, and we get stuck. Paul's gonna say that neither one of those errors will ever work. We have to look in, but we do it through the power of the cross. Again, we look to see what's earthly in us and not see that as evidence of why we're not deserving God's love. You're not deserving of God's love. Neither am I. And yet he's given it to us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not because of who we are, because of what, who he is, he pours his love out on us and then invites us into a life of being changed and transformed into the image of his son. And again, we look up, we look in through the power of the cross, but it's not linear. The Christian life isn't, you come to faith once and then now it's all up to you and then you know it's not one, two, three. We continue to look up to him. We don't look to Jesus just once for salvation and now we're on our own if we wanna grow and mature. No, we continue to come back to him because Jesus is central to all of life. I don't have this in my notes. I didn't say it in the first service, but this is important. Uh, Chapter two, verse six. If it's open, it won't be on the screen. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Man, if we believe that. Because so many of us believe that we receive Jesus through, by grace through faith, but if we're gonna mature, it's up to us. And if God's gonna keep loving us, it's up to us. He says, as you received him, walk in him. Right? Jesus is central to all of life. Look at verse 11, chapter three. He says, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and he is in all. This is a list of uh, kind of qualifiers about people in Colossae in the first century, right? And what he says is, there is nothing about you externally that could make you any more or less loved by God. He, he says, he gives us ethnic criteria, Greek or Jew. He says, that, that doesn't hold weight to God's love for you. There's no religious criteria. That's what the circumcision thing's all about. There's no socioeconomic criteria. There's no cultural criteria, but Christ is all and he is in all. The point is this, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how much you've been in church, how much Bible you know, or how much money you have. If you are in Christ and at the deepest core of who you are is you belong to God. That's our identity. And he gives, well, we read it earlier, these two lists of sins as examples of what we should be putting to death in our lives. This isn't an exhaustive list. If, if you could just get these things under control, then you're fine. It's examples of, again, the way people live. And, and these are things that, if they're present in us, we should be putting to death. But it's a specific example of deeper reality. What I mean by that is, in Matthew 22, Jesus has asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And he sums up all of following him, life with God. He says this way, you love God, you love your neighbor. And so when Paul describes to the Colossians what we need to put to death in our lives, he gives them two categories. The first list, starting in verse five, is a list of things that describe uh, a dysfunctional relationship with God. This unraveling of a relationship with God. The second list, it's in verse eight, describes this dysfunctional relationship with others the unraveling of relationship with other people. And again, the point here is not, if you can manage to not do these things, you're good. The point is, not only does Christ reconcile us to himself, he reconciles us to one another. And as we look in at ourselves through the lens of the gospel, where we see these things are present, we need to remove the, their source of power. 
Quit playing around with your sin, thinking you got it under control. You can stop at any moment you want to. He says, you put it to death. This is serious language because there are things in your life that are crowding out your ability to see and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ. He says, you put them to death, right? I need you to see that Christianity isn't just a list of don't do these things anymore. That's what this is inviting us to. And the question that we all have to answer this morning, church, is what are the things in your life that you are actively walking in, the things that you are giving your time, your energy, your effort to, that are making it difficult for you to see the beauty of Jesus, that are making it easy for you to forget who he is, forget what he's done, and forget that he's invited you to live a life with him. You identify those things, you drag them out of the light. He says, don't lie to one another, quit pretending like you're fine on your way to church, pretending like everything's good while inside it is a wreck. You drag those things in the light, be honest about them, confess and repent, and, and you'll be healed. That's what the Bible says. We be honest about the things in our life. We put off the old self, we put on the new. Look at verse 12. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive, must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We look up, we look in, and we look around. The next way that God changes us, not only does he change the way we see ourselves, he changes the way we see others. And again, Christianity is not just I don't do these things anymore. If you read that, that is a compelling vision for the Christian life. He says that we are chosen, holy, and beloved. We are chosen not because we're better than other people or because of how great we are, but because of how great he is. We are beloved because Jesus sees us and he moves toward us and he invites us to live, not just for him, but with him. And we are holy, not, but not because we're actually holy, practically righteous, but because we are positionally in him, because our record of debt has been canceled and because now the perfection of Christ counts for us. Did you notice when I read through that list of 12 to 14, every single one of those things that you're supposed to put on are impossible to do by yourself, right? You cannot be compassionate unless there's someone in your life to be compassionate to. You cannot be kind or show humility by yourself on the couch. Right now, you might think, man, I'm the most humble person in the world as you're sitting there alone. But what happens when you bring someone else into that equation? Right, and, and this, is, this is the vision that God has given to us for our life. This is what life's supposed to be, not just reconciled to him, but reconciled to one another in actual relationships, not just like things that we cultivate on prayer retreats, but this internal identity that's given to us by Christ, this new heart that changes us from the inside out, that moves us from things like anger, wrath, malice, and slander, Lives full of that moves us into things like kindness and humility and patience and compassion. And when we're reconciled to God, we're also reconciled to one another. And, and God takes a bunch of individuals and he forms a people called the church. And what Colossians 3 is saying to us is that one of the things that cultivates the soil of our hearts for this type of growth of being transformed into the image of God, one of the things that cultivates the soil of our hearts most is belonging to a community of people who are serious about Jesus. Being a part of a community of people who are serious about Jesus. Let me just say this, if, you, if your community, if your Christian friends, if it's shallow when it comes to the things of God, Jesus is rarely ever mentioned. 
Never really consider how the gospel would impact the, the moment that you're in, whether how good or bad it is. If it's shallow, let me just encourage you this way. Be the one that turns up the temperature. Be the one that raises the water level, right? If Jesus doesn't come up, be, have the courage to be the weird Jesus guy. And isn't it strange to say that you could actually be the weird Jesus guy in a room full of hundred people, hundreds of people at church? But how easy is it to ignore him? How easy is it to go about our business, go about our life just completely unaware that God of the universe sent his son to reconcile us into a forever relationship with him? Have the courage to be the guy who says, what about the Lord Jesus? How does what he's done, how does that impact this situation? How does that impact who we are and what we should be doing? And there's a reason why we're talking about community so much, just in our name, Community Bible Church, why it's so important for you to get into a group is because this is not easy. This list of things, 12 to 14, is a compelling vision for life, but it's not easy. When do you need to be compassionate? You need to be compassionate when someone around you is needy to the point of, of most likely inconveniencing you. And the Bible says, be compassionate, put on compassionate hearts. When do we need to forgive? When someone has wronged us, right? When do we need to have patience? The Bible says, that's for when people are getting on your nerves. That's how we respond, patiently. Right, and this will not be easy, but this is, this is what the Bible says should be increasingly true about us because we have been raised with Christ. This is not something we can do on our own. Right, you can't, you ever just tried to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be more patient. How'd that work? What about compassion? I've been trying to, to grow on my own in compassion. I've been, in May will be 13 years I've been married. You can ask my wife, it's not working. We don't have the power to do this on our own. We need God by the power of his spirit. As we look to him, we're transformed, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Where, where does the, the strength to do this come from? Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Here's why. Here's the source. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The source of our forgiveness and compassion and kindness is not because people deserve it from us, Right? We don't live this way because people deserve it from us. We live this way because you and I, when we did not deserve it, have received love, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness from God. And so we reconciled to God. We live those types of lives. He has brought us near and that changes everything about us. Basically what's happening here is he brings it full circle. It's not linear. It's not you look up and then you look in and then you look around. He says, God has reconciled you to himself. You do everything you can to remove things from your life that make it easy for you to forget who Jesus is and what he's done. And as you do that, you look in at yourself, he'll transform you. You look around, he'll change the way you see other people and you'll pursue him in five, 10, 15, 20 years of faithfully following Jesus and you look back one day and you go, man, look at what God's done. Verse four says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Church, we are as secure in this moment as we ever will be. We will be with him, right? A life, a discipleship is a life of following Jesus, a life of being changed by him, and a life of living on mission with him. We'll talk about that next week. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing and respond. Lord, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy. I pray right now for the folks in this room, if there's somebody in here who feels stuck, who when I talked about putting to death, therefore what's earthly in you, they, their heart screams out basically, I'd love to, but I don't know how. So God, would you minister to their hearts? Help us, God, to see the vision that you've given us for life. Keep us, God, from settling for 
a, a Christian life that is just following a list of rules, God, but would we abide? Would we, we, would we actually live a relationship, live our lives in a relationship with you, and would you help us to be the church? God, we need your help. So in these moments, as we sing and as we respond, would you speak to us clearly? Press on our hearts the spaces and the places, the things that we've been walking into that we need to put to death. Help us, God, to grow in putting on compassionate hearts, meekness and patience and kindness, God, that we might actually live the way you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.